Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Culture Bunker, your weekend bunker supplement. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Alex Andreu. On this week's show, Colombia Te Quiero Tanto, Willem Canto, Disney's latest animation about a magical family, Charmer Muggle Hearts. And No Yard Feelings. Post Post Leeds Punk's Yard Act released their debut album, The Overload, this weekend. What will we make of it? Plus, we watch Japanese corruption thriller The Journalist on Netflix, and we have film critic Linda Marrick's new movie Roundup. All this and more in today's Culture Bunker. Hello and welcome. Let's meet our guests. We are delighted to have Linda Marrick back in the bunker, film critic for Hey You Guys, The BFI, The Juice Chronicle, The Mirror, The Enemy, and many, many more. Hello, Linda. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. How are you? I'm very well. It's a little bit grey where I am, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I've been watching colourful things to make up for it. Um, we'll have your movie roundup a bit later, mm-hmm. but uh, Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley comes out this week, and you've yeah. seen it. Why should we be racing to the cinemas to watch it this weekend? L- listen, I think this is one of his best films yet. I think... It's his best film since Pan's Labyrinth, in my opinion. Um, oh, I wow. wasn't, I, I, although I loved The Shape of Water, I thought it was fantastic. But I think this is this holds a special place in my heart. It's a, I wouldn't say it's a remake, but it's a, sort of another adaptation of a 1946 novel, which was already made into a movie in 1947. And it, it's just a wonderful sort of psychological thriller with kind of some supernatural undertones to it. The cast is fantastic, absolutely wonderful. You've got Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, uh, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, uh, you know, uh, obviously Bradley Cooper, who's, who plays the lead. Uh, everyone is just mag- magnificent. The only thing I, I found is that the film did really badly in America, sadly, because it came out at the same time, on the same week as uh, Spider-Man. And uh, I just think that is so sad because it it really is a wonderful movie. I encourage anyone who can, who feels confident and secure about going to the cinema to actually make the trip and go and see it. Linda, also, uh, Gaspar Ulliel died uh, last week. I mean, he was a very special actor. Fantastic actor, very young, very Very hopeful. And and that's what I wanted to ask you. Why does the loss of someone with sort of so much so much future ahead of them, so much potential ahead of them, always hits so hard? Because I think it's, it's, it feels unfair, you know? It feels like he yeah. had so much more to give and sort of to be kind of snuffed out. Uh, and this very, very sort of tragic accident, if it was something like a, a, an illness or something, I think... I, I honestly, anyone young dying is uh, is bad news anyway. But to go in that way is just horrific, and mm. I, I think uh, we are all sort of lesser for having lost him. And you know, I mean, it just must be so tragic for his family as well. But you know, I, as cinema fans, I think this is a tragic loss for all of us and for French cinema as well. Yeah, our best to his family and friends. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Also joining us today is Jim Butler. He's worked for The Guardian, Jockey Slut, The Word, Face, Mix Mag, Hole and Corner and many, many more. Hello, Jim. How are you? Hello. I'm fine. How are we all? We're all good. Thank you. (laughs) Now, 
In quotes, having reached our crowdfunder just before Christmas, the first issue of Disco Pogo will be out in May, they say. Tell us more, Jim. What's Disco Pogo? (laughs) So Disco Pogo is um, Jockey Slut's 20-odd years on. We did the Andrew Weatherall tribute book, um, which came out just before Christmas last year, Mm. not uh, 2020, end of 2020. And the the reception was, was such that... Uh, we had lots of people saying, look, you, sh- you should bring the magazine back, you should bring the magazine back. Mm-hmm. That wasn't something that we wanted to do entirely, but it kind of planted a seed that maybe there was something there. And um, so we, we decided to, you know, we're going to do a, a twice yearly kind of much more high-end publication. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, I mean, it's, you know, it's going to be, to we, we, we assume it's going to be, uh, and hope it's going to be of interest to the people that read Jockey back in the, the 90s and the noughties. And so, we, we, you know, we, unashamedly, it will be aimed at maybe 40, 40 something, 50 something. Never uh, be ashamed <laughs> about that, Jim Butler. <laughs> well, that's, that's where we are. Um, <laughs> and uh, we put a crowdfunder up. You know, I mean, it, it went well to start with. Then there was a bit of a slow mm. middle uh, section. And then the last week, it just went crazy and we smashed our target. And. You know, so that means that we can now do it. Uh, I mean, the hard work starts now. We've got to actually mm. do something. Um, but yeah, first issue will come out in May. We had our first kind of production editorial meeting in London last week, and um, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be exciting. It's going to be interesting, kind of getting back in touch with a world that I spent so much time in, you know, over <laughs> yeah. twenty years ago. But um, mm. yeah, we're, I'm I'm really looking forward to it, and um, it'll be good to 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 dip my toes back into that world again. Yeah, fabulous. Now, a little-known fact that uh, before it received its title, Smash Hits, and that was deigned to be that, it was going to be called Disco Fever. Ah. Very slimly, <laughs> it was not called Disco Fever. Disco Pogo, I feel, is handing on to the reins. Are you a man who used to go to clubs? Um, now you go running instead. I presume the endorphin highs are just the same. What are the best tunes to jog to, Jim? Well, For people uh, like me who need to get back into it, I listen to tunes probably from the nineties. And not, I mean, I, li- I, you know, find me an Andrew Weatherall remix, uh, mm-hmm. remix on and and anything you know in that kind of one hundred and twenty beats per minute. A love from outer space, anything, yeah, you know, Balearic, cosmic disco, anything in that vein. Go on, I just go on SoundCloud, and I mean, there's so many on there, and yeah, they they have got me through my conversion to running, shall we say, over the last uh, two years. Okay, so you're saying Weatherall. I'm saying Weatherall, yeah. Always say Weatherall. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Before we crack on, a small reminder, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture and more every day and some very cool merchandise. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to keep our pods a casting. Imagine being the only person in your group who is not special in any way. I bet you don't need to imagine. Everyone has felt that way at some point. That is the kernel of Disney's latest offering, Encanto. The Madrigals are a very special family. Every member of it acquires a magical power during childhood. Every member except Mirabel Madrigal. There is nothing special about her. Their house is a magical hub radiating warmth and protection to their small mountain village, but the magic is waning and the house is cracking up, and the only person that seems to notice it is the only person who can do nothing to stop it, Mirabel Madrigal. Here is a little trailer. 
Many years ago, this candle blessed our family with a miracle. Our house, our casita, came to life with magic. Hola, casita. In time, every member of our family Cecilia, up top! was given their own magical gift. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I understand you. I'm not super strong like Luisa. The donkey's got out again. On it! Or effortlessly perfect like Senorita Perfecta Isabella. But, Mama, why am I the only one that didn't get a gift? You're just as special as anyone else in this family. You just healed my hand with an arepa con queso. Linda, what was your reaction? Did it leave you cold or did it fry your buñuelos? <laughs> I, in all honesty, when I, I, I first saw it, look at maybe a couple of months ago, as much as I enjoyed the uh, the truths, and I love, you know, it's, it's uh, put it this way, it's, you know, he's he's the best person you can have writing your tunes. And that's, a you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah. So I thought the songs were really lovely and very sort of, you know, but they're great beauty. You find yourself, have, you know, you can't help but thinking about them throughout the day after watching it. The story itself, I, I honestly, I didn't really gel much with it. It's not, it didn't do anything for me. I'm really sorry to say. <laughs> Is there a part of you when you go to these things that sort of re reacts to the film as audience and then a separate part of you that reacts as critic? And do they always agree? Or do, or do you find that sometimes there's a bit of you that loves something but the critic bit? Um, no, absolutely uh, not. I, I Honestly, no. I, I think... I'm always an audience member, whether it, it is at a press screening or like, well, if I've paid to go something, see something, I'm always an audience member. I react to things how I viscerally react to them when I'm writing. So it's, it has nothing to do. I think I am primarily a film fan. I love film. Mm. And if I love something, I want to write about it. I've never been tempted to sort of be negative about something just because, just to find something to talk about, if you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. I, I I just didn't get on with the story itself. I did. I think there wasn't enough. Um, I think there's a lot of symbolism about sort of war and conflict and stuff. But I think not much was made out of that, and it was all very too too fluffy. And uh, in the end, really disappeared into itself. And I just don't think it made the point it was seeking to make. But. Mm. Having said that, I really like the music. <laughs> so, you know. Listeners will know that I love Fluffy and specialize in Fluffy. <laughs> so my, my review a bit later. Um, it, Linda, the film is a, is a love letter to Colombia, really. Yeah. And, and it, almost every review I have read by a Latino journalist mm -hmm. suggests that Disney have got this right. Yeah. What is it about a film you think that can lift it from sort of cultural appropriation and make it cultural spotlighting? I, yeah, I, I think it's getting people who are actually from that culture to write or to sort of write about it or uh, to, to write the story. I think mm, that's mm. where, you know, I, I don't know if you loved Coco, which I absolutely loved. I think that... I loved Coco. That, loved I think Coco, Coco is one of the greatest... Disney movies of all time. I yeah. just cried my eyes out at Coco. I didn't feel this way about this. I think where they got it right with Coco was to literally get 
sort of Mexican writers, Mexican musicians, all involved in making this sort of very authentic. And I think they've they've done this with this as well. I just didn't think the story was that strong. I think they call them heritage trusts. Yeah, that's right. That Disney started mm-hmm. putting together, so that if they and I think they started with Moana. I think Moana mm, was yeah, the first yeah, yeah. one that they put a Pacific Islander trust Mm -hmm. to sort of advise on every aspect of the story, etc. Jim, the music, which we've talked about a little bit by Lin-Manuel Miranda, takes a quite different path, I think, to the Disney formula. There is no sort of power ballad for the heroine, no comic relief number for the non-human character. There are whole songs in Spanish with no translation, like Dos Oruquitas, which is up for an Oscar, actually. How did you get on with it? The music, I I liked the, um, the we don't talk about Bruno. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Such an earworm, isn't it? An earworm. <laughs> um, and it? And it's definitely a song that my, myself and my whole family have been singing for the last, we, we saw it over Christmas. We, I have a nephew, my my. Uh, children have a cousin called Bruno, so we we have been. Oh, brilliant! Um, because of that, um, the rest of it. I mean, I, I I get the fact that it's you know that, that there are some heavy hitters involved. I I preferred the music on Moana. The whole film. I agree with Linda. Um, well, not so much about the music, but I just found the whole film a bit muddled. You know, the the film has very noble intentions in some respects, and that, and as Linda said, the symbolism you know that it refers to is slightly underplayed. I mean, you know, there's the, the idea of how we treat displaced people, refugees. But I, I just felt that, to me, that the film was a bit of a mess and it kept kind of going back over itself in search of trying to, you know, maybe tell a story that was, was lost some, in, in, some, in some fashion. Oh, fascinating. Um, I mean, I have seen some reviews that basically complained that Lin-Manuel Miranda's music is getting a little bit (laughs) repetitive, a little bit derivative, a little bit preppy. But, you know, the album went to the top of the charts, both here and in the US, displacing Adele's 30, I should say. Peppy and derivative is the essence of pop, isn't it? There's nothing (laughs) wrong with that. (laughs) No, of course not. I mean, um, that's been, as you said, it's been the essence of, of pop music for the last 60 years but um to me it, it didn't ha- i don't know it just apart from the aforementioned bruno it just didn't none of the songs captivated me yeah uh, yeah I, it wasn't that i i i wasn't being turned off because i i felt that they were you know it was, wasn't the derivative aspect that you know i mean this is a disney film for god's sake you know we're not i'm not expecting you know cutting edge underground you know manifestos or anything like that but um it just it just didn't do anything to me. I mean, my two youngest children enjoyed it. It just didn't touch, press my buttons. Okay, Sean, I shudder to ask, knowing your relationship with films that are intentionally sweet, uh, did it work for you? Um, I'm not sure it did, but I've been spending the whole day trying to analyse why. Because what when Disney are good. They do a classic fairy tale. We know what to expect. And there is a lot of light, but there's also darkness. And I think within this, there is not enough darkness that the edges have been smoothed over for me in terms of what the story is trying to say. Mm. And there genuinely, is no villain. Well, there is. Actually. Well, apparently fear is the villain. And, then, and the villain is the house itself and what it holds. And we find out what it holds. Mm. I think that it's sort of shying away from that. And there's something about that Disneyfication that can happen with these films until they become confident again. They do something really quite impressive um, and I think that's the thing that I couldn't find a hook 
I just kept drifting off. I just wasn't interested somehow in the goodness that they were trying to tell me about. And all the characters are always inherently good in these things. They have these fantastic superpowers, her um, sisters and much of the village. And yet, there's nothing else. I thought the Bruno character was actually the most interesting. Oh, I've got a theory, but I want to tell you about the Bruno character. The magical powers, I thought, were cleverly chosen in a family context. So there's one character can literally heal the family with her cooking. Mm. Another is the person who listens. Another is the one who's physically solid. Another is the girly girl, the joker, you know. is is. One of the reasons, one of the things the film was aiming at ultimately to say that all of us are somehow trapped in our assigned roles. Can I tell you my theory? Can I tell yeah, you my yeah, theory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Bruno character, so when that song comes on, I thought, oh, this is fantastic. We don't talk about Bruno. There is a secret. There is a darkness. There is something there. The Bruno character must be gay. They've cast him out. I think that's the subplot. And that's what's going under the surface. But because that's never properly realised, and then we get Mirabelle and what she does, and she is very classically a fairy tale heroine. She is a, not quite a Cinderella, but she is plain and certain, but actually her pragmatism is the thing that wins over. Mm. That's where the film lies. That was the interesting bit, and they skirted around that completely. There you go. Mm. Okay, so uh, look, it seems to me, let's flip this on its on its head. So there's not a single aspect of this film that, let's say, a Trump supporter would not object to, um, <laughs> from, the, from the Latino locale to the power and physical shape of the women in it, mm. from the lack of any romantic plot line to the premise and the message. Disney appears to be betting the house on woke, should progressives not be celebrating that? This is to the whole panel. Should we not be waving the flag for this? Is this not the sort of thing that we want kids to be exposed to? For me, yes, definitely. And I think it works better with much, much younger audiences. As an older older uh, audience member, I didn't find anything to hook me for longer. And I think mm. that is a mistake. I think a, a really good a Disney movie like the ones made by Pixar does things on two different levels, which mm, is mm. Uh, pleases the adults who have to take the kids to the cinema <laughs> and yeah. the, and the kids, even if they don't understand half of the jokes. I think that's what the that's where this film has failed a little bit. There was nothing to hook me, mm. you know, me as a, an adult person with no kids. There was nothing for me to sort of wonder about, you know. As you say, yes, definitely, we should be flying the flag for it and everything. But I think there are better movies on the subject. I think there are better movies like, as I say, like Coco, which I think is funny, self-aware, fantastically well done. I mean, the animation in Coco is out of this world. It's incredible. Mm. And I do want to cheer things when they are made specifically with sort of, you know, being very inviting into to other cultures. I want to cheer them, but it has to have also something that I really want to see. And I I wasn't blown over by this. Okay, so let me just tell you all very briefly why you're wrong. Um, <laughs> After that, such an eloquent. We're <laughs> just talking by Linda. Uh, no, look, I, I think... As with all these things, John Ardoin, who is a, the biographer of Maria Callas, once wrote something which I always keep very close to my heart. He said, there is no 
way to predict or describe the way something penetrates your body and hits your heart. Um, you can you can intellectualize it afterwards, but it either happens or it doesn't. Mm. And I think the reason why this worked for me, and it really worked for me, I it is my favorite Disney film in decades. Wow. It is because I have lived through the dynamics of that kind of very large matriarchal family. Mm. I think if you have been in that situation, it it just vibrates differently inside your soul, this film. If you have been in that situation where, you know, there is trauma and poverty in the in the past of both your family and your country, and you have at the head of it this incredibly powerful woman that's gripping everyone in order to protect them, but ends up gripping them too tight, this thing will work for you. I also think that because of the level of animation, because it has become so good, we judge these films now purely as films rather than the extraordinary sort of multidisciplinary art project that they are, something that has to be painted or pixelated dot by dot and which involves artistic choices. And looking at it from that point of view, I mean, at one point I paused and the, and I could see the stitches in the sort of colorful skirts and um, shirts they were wearing moving around. At one point, you get a, this really beautiful homage to Gabriel Garcia Marquez's uh, 100 Years of Solitude with a swarm of yellow butterflies flying around the the central character. The architecture, the 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 flora, the fauna, the food. All of it worked for me, and I cried my eyes out. Instead, indeed, I cried this morning while I was writing (laughs) notes for this show. So um, if you do come from a large family, I would suggest you give this movie a good look. (laughs) Time for a tune from one of our guests, their editor's recommendation. Linda Marek, what have you bought in from us from sunny Surrey, or cloudy Surrey as it is today? (laughs) I have brought in Bigger by Orlando Weeks, which I absolutely love. I am not, mm-hmm. I was never a fan of the Maccabees, but I love this song. I just, I, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful song. I, I, I've actually never listened to any of his, I believe this is his first solo outing. I have not listened to any, mm-hmm. any of his other singles, but this song, I, I just can't get it out of my head. I think it's beautiful and it's gorgeously done and he's brilliant in, in every way. <laughs> Now for some more new music. Yard Act are the hot new four-piece from Leeds United and they released their debut, The Overload, today. Inviting comparisons with The Fall, does this album duly provide us with the first shouty man plus angular guitar ration we need for early 2022? They have been variously described as post-punk and post-Brexit. Surely that's inevitable. We all are. We're going to put The Overload on our rolling playlist because of the man. So 
look out for it in your show notes. Jim Butler, I'll start with you. Elton John and apparently uh, someone called Ed Sheeran are both big fans of Yard Act. Can you see why? And what did you make of the overload? Elton John, I can, uh, I, I know that he, you know, keeps up to date with all music, so that doesn't surprise me. Ed Sheeran, uh, I the less said about Ed. <laughs> I love it. When I first, I mean, I'd, I'd heard a couple of singles on Six Music, where I get all my modern day choices <laughs> these days. But um, yeah. and so when when um, First listening to the album, I, I you know I was like, oh okay, it's a another post 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 punk mm. um, yeah. act. But then, as I got delved more into it, I, I realised that actually this wasn't just another Arctic Monkeys, Sleaford Mods, the mm-hmm. full um, rip off, and not not that any of that would be a bad thing in and of itself. But it reminded me of hip hop in many, and not the music obviously, but the mm. storytelling. The, mm-hmm. the it reminded me of Mike Skinner's you know, the kitchen sink opera, you know, a grand mm-hmm. free. The, the stories are so rich. The characters are, you know, he's, the, the first time you listen to them and the stories, you know, I mean, this is, you can all, almost listen to this as, an, as like your, one of your free Audible subscriptions. This is, mm-hmm. a story, this is a story, you know. The first time I listened to them, you, you, you obviously, like you've said, it's post-Brexit, you know, the characters in these are, you know, some of them are revolting. The stories are, you know, but the thing is, he knows these people. He's grown up with these people, mm-hmm. and he and he fills them with a kind of humanity, and, a, and there's an empathy mm. there in the music and in the in, in the stories that that bring that elevates it. He's not sneering at them. He's asking us to understand these characters. So a good example is a track called "Tall Poppies," isn't it? Because That's it the, seems oh, to be yes yeah, about. A character who has it all and then wants a mortgage, and isn't that stupid because that's so yeah. boring? But tell us about that song because I think this is really important part of the album. Absolutely, I mean that's the album centerpiece, isn't it? Mm. it kind of, you know, you've, the, you've the, I think it's about track nine of an yeah. eleven track album. I mean, and that's the other great thing about this album is the, the brevity. It's a short, sharp, thirty-seven this, minutes. Apart from this song, which is about six minutes, but mm. it certainly doesn't outstay its welcome. It's after you've had all these, you know, kind of the angular, spiky guitars and stuff. Mm. It, 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 this story, you know, it's so nuanced, so well observed. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the story itself, you know, he's got scouts coming from Crew Alexandra and it's something like <laughs> half and half biscuit, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and tales of authentic Italian restaurants and, you know, a, a, alluding to wife swapping to keep his marriage alive. And mm. It's funny. It's deeply affecting. And I think he wants us to, you know, he, he at the end he says he was my friend. Warts and all, these are people that, I recognise these people. You know, these are people, you know, the idea of a small town mentality and stuff like that. But these are people who surround us, and I think we've, you know, certainly in this age, in this post Brexit, if you, mm. I'm guilty of jumping on social media arguments and you know castigating people whose opinions mm. I don't share as stupid and stuff like that. But I think we've got to get beyond that, and I think in this album he does that. It reminded me of Philip Larkin in that sense. Mm. It, it carries on like a Philip Larkin poem and suddenly mm, yeah. you get something else at the end, something jarring and actually something yeah. really, really real. Alex, there's an anti-Brexit song, whoa, <laughs> called <laughs> Dead Horse, which is so obviously an anti-Brexit song. It features lines like, our culture will be just fine when all that's left is knobheads, Morris dancing to Sham 69. What did you make of Yard <laughs> Act? So as with all these things, I came to it knowing nothing about the <laughs> band, which mm. I am becoming convinced is a good way to listen to new things. <laughs> yeah. And so the album opens with this guitar riff that could be out of Come Together, mm-hmm. and it prepares you for one thing, and then suddenly it launches into, A, a different genre, and B, into the most glorious angry rant 
that lasts for 37 minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it genuinely took me by surprise. And I found myself actively listening, which rarely happens. I found myself stopping what I was doing mm. and listening to every word of this. And I think that's really quite special. And it's mm -hmm. really quite, and it's hard to be angry and to keep your sense of humor. And I think that's what's so special about this album. It's profoundly angry and very, very funny throughout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's just not enough voices like these talking about this stuff that that don't sound like rich, educated Londoners. And we're constantly battered with the refrain that real people out there think differently. Well, these lads sound to me like real people out there. <laughs> and apparently they disagree with all their bullshit. My favorite track was Rich. The lyrics are so clever. They are genuinely worthy of sort of Edward Lear. They, mm -hmm. they are so, so smart. The rhymes they make are almost called portery in that they occasionally interrupt words halfway through mm -hmm. to make a rhyme with the next I line. I bet just they have so not been compared to Cole Porter. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> it's so, so smart. Yeah. I, I found it just an incredibly smart and thought-provoking piece of work. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Rich. Um, there's also a, a song called The Incident, where the narrator mm. is a modern corrupt individual who claims to be ethical, but is in fact a rip-off merchant. The <laughs> outro and an outro chorus as such is I'm irrelevant, just repeated. It reminded me of Working Man's Club um, quite a lot. It also reminded me of Enjoying the Blockheads, which I thought, please, we need that sort of thing back. Were you surprised, you saying that you like this album? Because on paper, the problem is we have a lot of Sprech Sang. That is the genre du jour. This is what you know, they're going to sound like the Seaford Mods cross with the fall. Do you really need to get your ears in gear and give it repeated listens? I don't think, I don't think it's uh, like anything else I've heard before. Okay. It plugs into loads of different things. But to me, the level of intelligence and the level of playfulness and humor in those lyrics is not like anything I've heard before. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a pop music expert, but... I think this is really quite special. I think if you transcribe this into a, a book of poetry, it would be worthy of printing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Genuinely. So I think it sounds like just Sweet. all power to mm. them. One question, Jim, I have for you. James Smith is a singer. Um, yeah. Sometimes he's closer to Jilted John than Marky Smith. He is so much foregrounded in the production of this. Is there a danger that becomes James and his backing band or we see that in the future? I mean, that's obviously something that they will you know, have to wrestle with as they as mm. they progress. I mean, as it stands at the minute, it's a, a beautifully realised, funny, profoundly intelligent um, album. And the thing, I mean, what I found interesting was that he's actually now, you know, he's in his 30s and um, I believe that his long-time partner in crime is actually even older than him. So these aren't young pups as such. You know, they've been <laughs> yeah. around the block. They've So similarities to Sleaford Mods as well then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that they... Hopefully they won't get caught up in in the. It's not hype, but you know the the, the publicity, the the what you know the, their lives are probably going to change in the, over the mm. next few months. I, I mean, it's a captivating, musically thrilling. The last track, I think, points in directions. That I was going to ask well. about it. Um, yeah, you know, hundred percent endurance. Yeah, it's very melancholic. The minor chords, you know, it, they they could they could go down the an LCD sound system route if they so wished. 
It reminded me slightly of early Happy Mondays. They don't have to paint themselves in this post-punk corner if they don't want to. And, and that obviously is exciting as well. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Right, time for our movie roundup. Linda Marrick goes to see all the films all the time. <laughs> so she's brought in a few recommendations for us. There are lots of new films coming out in the next few weeks. They can't stop making them and putting them out. But we've picked two trailers for you to give you an idea. One is The Batman and one is Downton Abbey. The Riddler is asking for you. The killer left this for the Batman. Why is he writing to you? Riddler's latest. It's all about the Waynes. If we don't stand up, no one will. You got a lot of cats. Never think about strays. The bat and the cat. It's got a nice ring. You a new friend of yours? I'm not so sure. I'm just here to unmask the truth about this cesspool we call a city. You're part of this too. How am I part of this? Oh, you're really not as smart as I thought you were. Bruce Wayne. Before you were born, I met a man. And now I've come into the possession of a villa in the south of France. What? Three, two, one... Better be warned. The British are coming. Linda, there, there are a few. I'm going to reel off the list and we'll talk about a few of them. The, the films that you think we should see, get your pencil and paper ready, as they say. The Worst Person in the World, Parallel Mothers, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Paris, 13th District, The Batman, plus Downton Abbey, the film, and Death on the Nile. Let's start with Parallel Mothers because it's the new Pedro Almodovar. How could it not be with that title? Why is this good? Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, it's, do we really need an excuse why <laughs> what, to watch a Modabar movie? I, no. I mean, he's fabulous. I absolutely love this. And it's, again, in true. I love what he's been doing lately, which is concentrating a lot on how his film look more and more, you know? He's, he's got this kind of uh, mm. uh, almost uh, uncanny way of uh, comp- composing a set, which I'm, I'm completely in love with. And I really love him. And I think the story is fantastic. It's about these two, sort of this woman in her 40s who gets pregnant out of wedlock and a, a, a teenager who also gets pregnant out of wedlock and they meet at the hospital the same day they're having... 
their babies and mm. eventually sort of get intertwined into each other's lives. Mm. And I, in true uh, our <laughs> story, there is a, a sort of a very unlikely events happen. That's all yeah. I'm going to say. I've seen the trailer and I'm desperate to see it actually. And it's yeah. got all his themes. It's got mothers in it. Mothers, if, if women, uh, the conversations are just yeah. fabulous. I love, you know, I, I love his dialogue. I think he's the most real sort of dialogue writer, in my opinion, because that's how women talk to each mm-hmm. other. There's a lot of stuff you know, attention to detail, gossipy, you know, I, I really loved it. I, yeah. I, I love Pablo Amodova. I watch anything he's ever, <laughs> he's ever released. So yeah, I loved Great. it. Now we also have The Batman, definite article fans will love that. Is this going to be good? Robert Pattinson stars, isn't he? I should think so. Yeah, I've not seen it yet. Nobody has seen it yet. I, I should think so. I think, um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a fan of Robert Pattinson and loads of people sort of were a bit, you know, unsure about the um, the casting, but mm-hmm. I, I have faith in him. I think he's a fabulous actor. But I think this is going to be sort of darker mm-hmm. and uh, more sort of performance-led, let's say, okay. you know. So, um, yeah, okay. let's see. Let's see. Mm-hmm. I'm, um, I can't, you know, I'm not in, in, in a habit of reviewing films I haven't seen yet. So, let's see. Fair enough. Just want the heads up. <laughs> also, The Worst Person in the World. What's the story on this? This is a Nordic rom-com, apparently. That sounds like a nice cocktail to me. Why does it make a good film? Well, not a rom-com, but, <laughs> you know, it's a kind of tragic comic oh, film. Okay. Uh, by Joaquin Trier. It's a, mm-hmm. This is a, a gorgeous film. I think this is one of the best films of really? the coming year anyway. Yeah. Uh, Joaquin Trier, if anyone remembers, Thelma a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. three or four years mm-hmm. ago, which was a supernatural thriller. Again, here it tells the story of this girl, uh, young woman and her relationships and through sort of, I think, a, a seven-year seven period, if I'm not mistaken, and her interaction with people around her and, and uh, a former lover. And it's, uh, I, I'm not really selling it as, as much as I should, but I think, I think you need to see it. I think you need okay. to see it to be believed because there are so many things to it that are uh, uh, incredible. You know, you would yeah. actually, there's a, a hint of supernatural to it as well. Yeah, and, okay. Uh, visually, it's stunning, gorgeous. Well, I like that. Hard to describe. That's what you Hard think, to you know, describe. Hard yeah. to describe. I mean, I would probably... I would probably fit, find more words to say about it once I sit down and write my review. But right now, <laughs> short it's of done. it is, yeah. I absolutely adored this movie. Now, for the John Lewis contingent, it's <laughs> Downton Abbey, the movie, or is that Downton Abbey 2? I'm not sure. And Death on the it's Nile. Two. Downton Abbey okay, 2. Two. Oh, for goodness sake. Okay, and Death on the Nile, part a million, because that's been remade and remade. Yeah. I, I have to say... The way I saw the way I saw that on the script, I thought it was Downton Abbey two, Death on the Nile, and I, and I thought that's actually quite an interesting idea. I'd watch that Downton on the Nile. <laughs> Maybe they should. Are these necessary? Do we need this stuff, Linda? Why have they made these? Films? We don't need it, honestly. <laughs> this is Downton Abbey. Uh, Call on a new era. I mean, it's set different. It's it's not set on in Downton Abbey anymore. So uh, that's all I have to say. I've not seen it yet, uh, but it's set somewhere else, and there is a kind of mystery to it, you know, uh, the to, to be solved. Um, and then, uh, yeah, everyone else is back. It's written again by Julian Fellows, directed by Simon Curtis. 
uh, you know, what, what can I say? You know, I it's down the Abbey. Yeah, Now, Death on the Nile, is, is that the uh-huh. same story? Therefore, you could just look it up and know who did it? Yeah, I think he did the Orient Express slightly differently, but this, in the end, we, you know, the same story, basically, who... The, the, the culprit is always the same. Uh, but I think that's not really the most important part of the film. And The Death on the Nile has uh, is coming out despite uh, the fact that Army Hammer is in it. Uh, so ah, that's a point that's of contention. Because yes. um, there have been no Army Hammer films, have there, for a while. Mm. Can I just say, I, I, I think I marvel at the just the chutzpah of someone who sees a screenplay written by Anthony Schaefer, which the 1978 film was, uh, starring Peter Ustinov from memory, Bette Davis, Mia Farrow, <laughs> yeah. Angela Lansbury, David Niven, Maggie yeah. Smith, <laughs> Jane Birkin, I'm still remembering names, Simon McCorkingdale, and they think, I reckon I can improve yeah. on that. <laughs> I mean, it's Kenneth Branagh, who I really love. Uh, I wasn't a fan of the Orient Express. I thought it was terrible. I thought it was just... I, mm-hmm. I actually thought he was the weak... Because he, he played Poirot, and I didn't believe yeah. his Poirot at all. You know, I, I think Ustinov is, to my knowledge, the best Poirot still. I think if you are given a lot of money to make a film, <laughs> you go and make it, and that's that. I don't know whether he's going to improve on it. I doubt mm. he thinks he's going to improve on it. Uh, but yeah, I it should like get Miss in as well. Miss yeah. Marple and Poirot <laughs> together, just mix it up a bit. Lastly, yeah. <laughs> Paris, thirteenth arrondissement. Oh yeah. Um, why should we watch yeah. this? Oh, it's by Jacques Audiard, who did The Prophet. Who I'm sure mm-hmm. you. Ah, that's an amazing uh, film. Uh, Paris Thirteen is was my favorite film of the LFF mm-hmm. uh, London mm-hmm. Film Festival. I just thought it was hot. You know, uh, just gorgeous interaction between these two young people, um, Parisians who sort of fall in love and out of love and are reunited mm-hmm. again. And uh, just fabulous story of uh, sort of what it is like to be free and single and in love in Paris. And it's a black and white movie, brilliantly okay. written, you know, and directed by Jacques Audiard, who I, you know, I adore. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Linda, for going to see the movies for us. Right, time for a track brought in by one of our guests again. It's Jim Butler. What have you got in your satchel, Jim? It's an old new track. Um, mm-hmm. It's by the Bernhards. It's taken from their a Moonglow EP. It's called Send Your Heart to Me. I, I've done myself a disservice by not knowing anything about this band. They were apparently around, not apparently, they were around in the early 80s <laughs> in yeah. Manchester, Um but nothing happened. There were a trio who performed jazz standards, apparently, this as the story goes, and then they um, decided to start making more modern music. They released a single, uh, it, it, it bombed, and then somehow this small Californian reissue label has put a compilation of their songs yeah. together on this Moon Glow EP. I get lots of uh, emails um, from record shops uh, that like to feed my vinyl habit and um, <laughs> for some reason I don't read them all every week and um, something was just I was drawn to this uh, description of this of this track uh, of this EP should I say and it said Orange Juice meets Arthur Russell. Ah yeah because I was going to say it sounds really like Orange Juice. Yeah yeah so I was like right okay yeah lis- listening and it is like Orange Juice meets Arthur Russell. 
but it's you know it's, it's literate sophisticated art pop from the early 80s that will you know find favor with people who are into things like talk talk early talk talk blue nile icicle work yeah. stuff like that it's um yeah it's got this kind of boss of boss of waltz which, which kind of you know hints at their, their jazz background but then is very art pop um, mm-hmm. but yeah i just find it you know the, the world that we live in the musical world that we live in that you know i'm finding out about this manchester band from the early 80s via a small issue reissue label in california yeah fantastic we can't play it unfortunately it's lovely but the man waggled his finger at us so to speak so we'll put it on our rolling playlist the link is in your show notes everyone the Journalist on Netflix is a Japanese political thriller about Anna Matsuda, played by Ryoko Yunekura, a maverick broadsheet reporter famous for challenging the government, exposing corruption and cover-up, relating to a series of scandals involving the government's siphoning public money into cushy deals with people it favours. Sound familiar? Here's a clip. <laughs> and yes, do not adjust your earphones. It is in Japanese. いや、見に戻っていい問題ではありません。状況から考えて明らかに地域があったのではと推測されます。官邸の関与があったのではないですか。地域者がこんな攻めたところで何も考えなくない。私新聞の松田と申します。お話を伺いますか。お話することは何も
the corruption of of, of us as humans and our, mm. and us as people, isn't it? You know, it's that that's mm. and without giving too much away. You know, there is a, a a tragedy in in episode two of somebody that just can't handle the fact that yeah, yeah. they are tainted by this scandal. It's not so much the immorality of governments and power structures; it's the the dishonesty of of ourselves and our soul and how we handle that. And you know, mm. and and as quite becomes quite evident, some people can't handle that, and that's to me more interesting than the corruption of the government. Yeah. Sean, this is a sort of Japanese bargain, maybe, or or as Jim said, a sort of Japanese all the president's mm. men. That kind of drama, in my mind, calls for big operatic confrontations <laughs> and outbursts. Mm. And the Japanese manner, especially in those sorts of civil service settings, is reserved and contained and at a distance and mm. bowing. Does that heighten or does it lessen the effect for you? I think normally it's a really good question. It heightens the effect for me when something is so played down and the stakes are so high. That contrast, mm. and especially we're seeing it here, we're seeing something about society as much as we're seeing it about the effects on individuals and government corruption. But here there's something that happens, and I don't know if anyone else got this, the music is so loud and is so overdramatic, and I felt that it was melodramatic. The music's doing so much work, and maybe they've upped it for, a, a, you know, what isn't a Japanese audience or something, that mm-hmm. I felt I was being played. And this is more Douglas Sirk music than it should be in a Japanese um, thriller. That I found dramatically the tension was then all over the place because I didn't know where it was supposed to be landing. It is so terribly, terribly dry and so terribly serious, and if there is humour, it's getting lost in translation, that it is hard to keep up and keep uh, the attention on it and also in terms of structure you know that corruption has gone on from the start because we see it in newspapers so there's no unfolding in that circumstance you have Mm. to see what happens then to the characters it's a different relationship you have with them because we already know it something has already big has been exposed and so it works on such a different level I found it quite difficult to get into but I've done two episodes now and I actually think three and four are going to start getting more and more interesting it's very much a slow burner so so you are going back to it you are I think I will yes because Ultimately, it is about those characters and how how they are going to be crushed up. It's it's really interesting with what Jim was saying about it being a little bit old fashioned. Mm. That I spent the first sort of third of the first episode arguing with my other half about <laughs> when it was set. Oh, okay. And it was only when someone took out a smartphone and started looking something <laughs> up that, that we knew we were in present day. There was there was something quite old fashioned about the you know, the stacks of paper everywhere in the, the newspaper office. It just it seemed a little bit nineties. I don't know if that was just me. Linda, the values of this uh, seemed quite cinematic to me. Like the characters were set up through visual more than exposition, which I thought was a good thing. There were loads of setups of beautifully evocative photography, you know, sort of images Mm. of people cycling as seen through a puddle of water on the on the Mm. street and stuff like that, instead of drab over the shoulder or two shots. Um that necessarily slows the action down. Did the trade off pay off for you i didn't really get on with it i think it is too slow and i think it's too muddled it doesn't really it throws you in straight away and Mm. i usually really like that because i think david simon does that with his 
stuff, you know, like a, The Wire and Oz. Mm-hmm. He, does, he mm-hmm. throws you in, into a, a story and sort of leads you towards developing that relationship with those characters. I just found this, as Shan said, a little bit dry. One thing I also found myself really wondering was, I don't think I've ever seen a Japanese series before. I've done plenty of South um, Korean stuff, but I don't think, I can't remember the last time I saw anything TV-wise to do with Japan and I was actually flabbergasted to to realize that and uh, I found I I, I think it's very Japanese and I think it's going to struggle to sort of I think we're Korean we're South Koreans are really good at sort of making um, their TV and film very accessible to Mm. to the outside world I think Japan is still kind of struggling with struggling with that but I think I really hope this is the beginning of something big for Japanese TV because I I, I really I I am a fan of the the writing of the culture. So mm-hmm. um, uh, one other thing that I found very shocking is how male the workplace is. Mm-hmm. There was one scene where you know working in this kind of like a government environment with about ten people. Uh, uh, stood yeah. around talking, <laughs> and they were all literally salary men, all men, mm, not yeah. a single woman. And uh, the whole, uh, I think that says a lot about, about Japanese uh, society. I'm hoping, this, I've only seen one episode, and I'm hoping episode two is going to be a bit more enticing. I just found this very slow and very boring, in all honesty, and kind of not quite believable. On what you were saying, Linda, a slightly wider question. Is yeah. Netflix performing a sort of unloaded vital function in educating the world in foreign cultures. Yes, absolutely. Mm. You know, I have watched in the last three years uh, everything from Korean thrillers and Mm. Indonesian horror to Mexican sci-fi to Icelandic procedurals. And through all of that, I actually mm. learn a shed load of stuff about mm. the culture and how things work there. Yeah. Would, would this cultural enrichment have, have reached us without Netflix? Absolutely not. I, th- I think you are 100% right. I think, mm. which, is, which is why I like Netflix. You know, I think it's opened up the door and I really lo- love the sort of, uh, the. for example, you have a, 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 a series like Squid Game. They were completely surprised by its success. They had no idea it was <laughs> going to be that popular because it was a, a series made by a uh, sort of, you know, uh, Korean producers, mostly, I'd say mostly for their own market. And then suddenly yeah, yeah. everyone was watching it, everyone discovering. And I think that's what's good about the kind of organic discovery of these things, like uh, La Casa de Papel and things, things like that, you know, is, is inviting it's, younger, it's, yeah. you know, yeah. younger. Uh, <clears throat> I, I think it's a really the- important point. I was watching the latest uh, Harlan Coburn thing uh, about a month ago, and I thought, I wonder if there's more Harlan Coburn stuff on Netflix. And I had a little look, and I found that his first book was made a series in Spanish. His Ah. second book was made a series in French. And so I thought, (laughs) oh, how... How marvelous! I can yeah, just have yeah, a, yeah, you know, I can have a, a a sort of multilingual Coburn season. Yeah, no, I'm very pleased with that, and I think to see so many younger users of the platform sort of actually watching it with subtitles, which I am so impressed with. Loads of, you know, you see all these kids talking about it online. They're like, oh no, don't watch the the dub. <laughs> Thank you.
podcast. And here's where we ask for favourite songs of all time to add to our bunker rolling playlist. It's a time capsule of all that is right about modern music. Jim Butler, what have you chosen for your favourite tune of all time? Well, I mean, talk about a thankless task. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, anyway, you know, the, the one that landed at the point where I got asked was Paris Angel's Perfume. It came out when I was 17, and um, I think is that perfect marriage of indie electronics, you know, Happy Mondays, New Order, and Acid yeah. House, which is completely where my head was at at age 17. You know, mm-hmm. it, um, it, it's hopeful, it's euphoric, it has this relentless forward motion throughout um it just reminds me of well reminds me obviously of being 17 but it just reminds me of better times mm-hmm. okay Ooh. that's a nice way to put it isn't it <laughs> and linda marrick it's your turn oh i i've picked i mean this was really hard for me because i have so many be- favorite songs but yeah i think you've um, changed your mind on i this changed well, my you, mind linda? yeah because yeah. i initially gone for something sort of more you know, uh, French, but mm-hmm. I, I there is a little bit of French to this one as well. So I went for To the End by Blur, which mm-hmm. is uh, a single from Park Life, which I absolutely adore. And I just, I never tire of listening to this song. I just mm. adore everything about it. The music itself, you know, his voice is gorgeous. The mm-hmm. music itself is fantastic. The production level in this is amazing. And then you've got Letitia um, Sadler from Sarah Lab mm-hmm. doing the French sort of... Uh, you know, uh, in between yes. his yes. lyrics. I, I, just, I adore this song. Love it, love it, love it. We're at the end of the show, so it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we wait for the magic to appear? Well, everyone <laughs> around us can conjure dancing teapots and they can lift really, really heavy things and we can't. Jim Butler, what's your closing time chatter? Having um, dipped into Six Music's kind of decade specials recently, <laughs> the, the 80s, 90s, noughties, um, it kind of became apparent to me that... that that where we are today is that what's happened to all these kind of small little daft genres, not necessarily daft, but the, the daft, <laughs> mm. daft monikered genres. You know, where's the where's our where's our skunk rock? Where's our riot girl? Where's our <laughs> where's know, our lurch scene? Yeah, yeah, where's our new acoustic <laughs> movement? You know, the new yeah. wave, new wave. Yeah. Romo, where did that go? Exactly, yeah, where, where there's electronic and music, hip hop probably still has these you know mumble rap and vapor wave and things like that. But what's to, the, to those in guitar to guitar bands, is it all just become so homogenised that it, it just defies categorisation, or, or have music journalists today kind of lost their imagination? Or do we need youth cults if they have disappeared? Do we need them? Do you think it's important for young people to have that tribal thing, the tribal thing in a good way? To me, I, I mean, I, I loved the fact that you know I was I was sixteen, seventeen at, at, when I was. I kind of, you know, almost did a year zero completely. Anything that came before this, you know, I disregarded. And then obviously as I got older, I disregarded that. But yeah, I think youth culture, I, I, I don't think that there is a youth culture today the same way it was 30 years ago. But mm-hmm. um, if you ask me, I think that's a shame. But, you know, a 16, 17 year old today would probably disagree with me and, and <laughs> they have all their rights to, you know. So, um, it, you know, it, it, it changes it, it you know, and, and, you know, somebody. Uh, 16, 17, you know, my dad's age would have probably disagreed with me as well. But uh, I, I think it's a shame that there aren't so obvious style choices, you know, that, that, that everyone seems to be repeating the past. Um, seems to be that. Well, I think, I think I can argue that they did that before when I was well, young. Yeah, yeah, Mods yeah, yeah. wanted to be in the 60s. So. Oh, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. But there was a music, there, was, there seemed to be a new ish mm-hmm. style of music to accompany that. Yeah. Rest okay. sense. Um, 
and it's the whole package. I don't think it's just music or you know uh, the way you dress. And I, I don't know. I, I personally, I, I think it's a shame. But you know, ask a sixteen, seventeen year old, and they'll probably you know think something different. They just look at their phone. And exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'll get you. If, if yeah. you can get anything out of them, you know, then yeah. absolutely. <laughs> no, some of them nice, honest. Linda, what's your closing time chatter? I think uh, since we were talking about Netflix earlier, mm, um, yes. there is a, a new initiative by Netflix that's uh, committed to one, $1 million dollars towards scholarships funds for students in sub-Saharan Africa. I think one million is not that much, not enough to be honest, personally. Mm-hmm. But it's a start. Yeah, it's uh, a great so, idea. In, yeah, in, so uh, in after, form, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, it is a, a great initiative, mm. and I'm so pleased they're doing it. Uh, so the fund will cover the costs of tuition, accommodation, study material, living expenses, and all sorts of things for students who've gained um, admission to pursue a course mm-hmm. on uh, TV and film. Um, I think what would be an even better initiative is to sort of put some money into uh, money into the um, African film industry. I think that would really encourage more people to sort of start working more on on uh, on that mm. side of things mm. in Africa. And I don't think there is enough being made. Well, no, mm-hmm. I don't just mean sub-Saharan Africa. I mean North North Africa yeah. as well. So, so yeah, promise to nurture and then to put it out on Netflix, please, because I agree with you. Yeah. We need new stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah it's a but good one, mid, one million isn't expanded. enough, in my opinion. I agree. It's, it doesn't <laughs> seem very much <laughs> when you hear the, um, yeah, the budgets yeah. of other films. Alex, what's your closing time chatter? God, this is turning into a love letter to Netflix, isn't it? Just, just <laughs> other streaming us, services are just available. Go ahead and give us some fucking money. I know already. they just sponsor <laughs> us. We're clearly your biggest <laughs> fanboys. Um, so uh, I want to put a marker down for Archive Eighty One. <laughs> okay. Tell us about it because this is big, isn't it? And um, uh, I haven't seen ma- it yet. Listen, I'm I'm merely mentioning it because I expect you all to go and watch it. Because when <laughs> I am back, I need <laughs> to talk about <laughs> it. Okay, yeah. it's about a restorer played by Mamudu Ati, who takes a job rescuing an archive of fire damaged videotapes. but finds himself pulled into a mystery involving the documentary maker, played by Dina Shihabi, and a mysterious cult. Where is it set, Alex? It's set in various places and it's set in various times. Oh, And I shall give no more more spoilers than that. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds really good. But look, the premise is old. Mm -hmm. It's Think Rosemary's Mm -hmm. Baby. The premise is that there's a building with a history that draws people together into a sort of coven or a cult. Mm. It's well-trodden ground. The handling is entirely fresh. It's sort of... Even the detail of how you restore old videotapes, cleaning them and sort of cutting mm. them and putting them into new cassette uh, uh, carriers, it's to, its just brilliant. The acting is splendid. It's really eerie and scary at, at times. It's eight episodes, mm-hmm. which I inhaled. Well, that sounds dangerous. Um, produced by Rebecca Zonenshine, mm-hmm. who also co-produces The Boys on right. Amazon. And it's based on a podcast. So, <laughs> so I look forward to the first season of a horror series called The Culture Bunker of Blood. There will be one, yes. <laughs> what about you, Sean? What's your, what's your closing time There's a fantastic article I read which raises a perennial question. 
Um, in it, isn't it? I mean, the title is Too Hot for the Plot. Could a modelling job have saved Jamie Dornan's character in Belfast? And it is about the very, very logical idea that when you have an extremely handsome or beautiful leading character who is in enormous debt and massive problems and everything spirals down, you think... Yeah, but you could just ring up Models One and say, I'm available. You could get catalog instantly. You could go to Azos and then you could probably, you know, you'll be in Harper's in a minute. Vogue, no problem. And it's a wonderful look at that. And the problem that we have is that sometimes you can't suspend your disbelief. You need to say, Jamie Dornan, you're just too good looking to be that poor. And it's wonderful. And it's written very lightly. And I really like it because I often, these are the conversations I have in my head when I'm watching films. And I love Jamie Dornan. He's brilliant in the tourist he's fantastic but yes it, it's very difficult for him to play ugly and poor and um it, very interesting thing because we are all so used to our stars being beautiful and sometimes it really irritates me to get someone who can actually properly play the part and um, so i think it brings up all those things but yeah that's what i've been thinking about beautiful people a week mm, kel surprise <laughs> i also want to say meet low far ip that um yeah. story is only just revealed itself this morning Meatloaf, what can you say what an absolutely incredible artist and a kind of genre of his own with Jim Steinman. And it's, it's, it's sad. It can't be other than sad, but I think I also might have a weekend of listening to Meatloaf. And, and then we can start Culture Bunker of Blood, which sounds like one of his album tracks, Alex. <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast officially. Thank you so much to Linda Marrick and Jim Butler. Thank you. Thanks for being part of Culture Bunker. You've been splendid from Alex. And from Sean and producers Alex Reese and Jelena Sofronievich, thank you for listening. See you next weekend. Bye. The Culture Bunker was written and presented by Sean Pattenden with Alexandre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. 